A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on Wednesday, November 11th, 11-11 of 2020. I'm Anna Garcia, your host, and our guest today and co-host is Danny Smith. And I'm so excited because I met Danny on assignment about three years ago um, for Crime Watch Daily. It was a horrific case. Last time I saw you, we were standing on a cliff where a child had been murdered. So um, Danny spent 21 years with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, seven of those years as a homicide detective. And now Danny has left that behind, has moved to Idaho. He writes detective novels. They're called the Dickie Floyd Detective Novel Series. I'm so glad that you are with us today, Danny. How are you? Thank you, Anna. I'm, I'm wonderful, and I'm very, very happy to be here with you. I, I, you know, I know you still work as a private investigator. You still do consulting, but I'm fascinated by your crime novels. And, and who's this Dickie Floyd? Is that just like this persona you made up? That's kind of a little bit of you. Well, I mean, um, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So Dickie and Floyd are actually the two primary characters in the first several books of the series. And, um, and so I just, uh, you know, when I started the series, that's what I named it. And, uh, and and yeah, there there are two characters that are based on um, me and and a partner I had whom you know personally. So that's uh, that's what the series is about. I love that when you were you know working these homicide cases, which are horrible and gruesome. Like, would you have these moments where you'd say, "Oh, I'm going to jot that down. That that would make a really good you know moment in a book." No, I never knew I was going to write. I wish that I had. Uh, I tell people all the time that that had I known I was going to be an author someday, I would have kept a journal through my entire career because, you know, let's face it, you remember uh, the most brilliant moments and, and the worst moments. But, man, some of that day-to-day stuff is is what really um, makes, a, makes a, a story, you know, come to life. And, you know, I, I get together with old friends and we talk and, and there will be things that I had totally forgotten. It's like, oh, yeah. You know, and I, and I use a lot of that in my books. Um, you know, the, the characters, some of the stories, although it's all fiction, it's a lot of it's kind of based uh, on reality. And um, and I do wish I had a journal. Interesting. All right. Well, we've got two amazing cases, and yes. I really want your insight on some of on the cases here because there are some com- confusing components, and I, I think your detective brain will help us understand that. So the. F- One of the cases is a 54-year-old Florida man who made millions from a surfer clothing line that he helped to found has been arrested for fatally shooting his 18-year-old girlfriend in a luxury hotel room. He claims it was all an accident because they were playing a game with a gun. Danny, who plays games with guns that are loaded? Well, this guy and Phil Spector. Um Right. You know, I I, uh, I was involved in that case. I actually wrote the uh, Mincy search warrant so that we could we could declare the Pyrenees Castle, Phil Spector's home. The castle. Scene. You know what? I, I'm going to take a quick detour here for you crime buffs. So Phil Spector, the famous uh, music producer, 
he lived in this crazy castle that looked like a Pyrenees castle. I am not exaggerating people because I sat on a stakeout outside that house trying to get him. I don't want to tell you how long. I know you got him, but I I did not, Danny. I did not. Okay, we're going to keep going. (laughs) We're going to have little tidbits of this throughout today's program. That's why I'm so glad you're here. But first, we have a major break in an unsolved murder case out of Michigan, which I covered three years ago for Crime Watch Daily. There has been an arrest. In fact, the Michigan State Police originally said that they had arrested two people But now they say there's really only one. They let that person go. They never identified the second person. This is the murder case of Egypt Covington. She was a 27-year-old blues singer who was found dead in her home. Danny, she had been tied up with Christmas lights, even though it was June, and she had been shot in the back of the head. This murder happened in June of 2017 in Van Buren Township, which is about 30 miles from Detroit. So, Danny, what's interesting here is before I get into some of the details is that very early on in the case, very early on, the Van Buren Police Department had said, and they had maintained this for years, that they believed that Egypt knew her killer. And they believed that it wasn't random because they said there was no sign of break-in. It didn't appear that anything had been stolen. And and I'm going to get into this further, which I think is very important The person who's been arrested appears to be like a lifelong criminal, violent criminal who apparently didn't know her. So the family is reeling right now trying to figure out, you know, had the case gone in the wrong direction for years? Yeah. And, and I don't know. I know that, that the, uh, the department is a small department and, and oftentimes a, a department like that in a community like that, the, uh, the detectives are, are less experienced and, and they can make some mistakes. Um, and the family had complained about that. After a few years, the family said, you know what, we're really frustrated with what's going on at the Van Buren yeah. Township Police Department. And ultimately it was the Michigan State Police Correct. that took over the case. And they're the ones who made an arrest. So yeah, and that's and that's so that's kind of a typical thing. It's you know the uh, investigators don't have a lot of experience. They can overlook things because they just don't they don't recognize what what they're looking at sometimes. Now the fact that they said they believed that that she knew the per, her killer, um, you know, my assumption without seeing any of the investigative reports is that, like you said, that there was no sign of a break in or even a struggle per se. Um, the fact that the the next door neighbors were gone, it's a duplex, and yet the neighbors were gone. So they, they kind of felt like this person must have had some inside information. So, you know, my, my, my thought on this is that they may only have one suspect now, but they also may end up with a second now that one is charged because that person may want to talk. Um, if there's more than one suspect, then we don't even know if the person who's been charged is the shooter or just a person that was there, a participant. Um, that's something that, that they'll have to explore. But, um, but, but clearly, there, there, ha- there would have to be some kind of a, a nexus between the victim and this person that they charged. And whether or not that's a third party, um, you know, I, we just or, don't know. Or DNA evidence, because... When I filed my report, we were waiting for some DNA results. And I want to talk about the DNA a little later when we talk about this guy's criminal history, because that makes me think, well, hold on a second. 
he's a career criminal. His DNA should be in the database. Why didn't this, if DNA has linked him, which we do not know, the Michigan State Police hasn't said, but if DNA is linking him to the crime, then I want to know, and it's a very reasonable question is, what took so long? What took so long? Yeah, and, and of course, I don't have that answer. I, I know that, you know, DNA is backed up and with every department and everyone, you know, their case is the most important case. So, you know, there's, there's some, sometimes there's long delays before a case can be resolved. You know, this, this case is three years old, so it's not really a, an old, old, cold case. My, my feeling on it is the case has been worked throughout the entirety of those three years and a small department, um, you know, DNA sometimes is backed up in, in all the different crime labs. I don't know what uh, Michigan is like, but it, it could be that it took them three years to get the DNA processed and then uh, matched through the database. Well, here's another thing that has the family really upset. And frankly, I think the entire community should be upset about this. The person who is charged right now with Egypt's murder Right before her murder, he had committed another felony. And the question is this, had he been, because he had been arrested and charged with yet another crime, the fact that he was out of jail when he could have been behind bars, that in itself may have prevented the murder of Egypt Covington, if indeed he is the one responsible for this. Yeah, and unfortunately, there's a lot of that going on all, all through the country. Um, people are being released. There's 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 new ideas about bail, and um, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but but it's a problem. And and uh, you take career criminals, and they're very predictable. They're going to continue committing crimes, and this guy is one of those guys. Yeah, absolutely. So on November fifth, investigators announced as I said, the arrest of two people, but now they say it's only one, 34-year-old Timothy Moore of Toledo, Ohio. He has been charged with her murder. And I want to do a deep dive now into the case, and we're going to talk more about him. So I want to talk about Egypt because I got a chance to meet her family, her boyfriend, people she worked with, the community. And this is a woman who you know, loved to sing. She was a a blues singer. She was a musician as well. She had won the top prize at Michigan's country idol competition. So she was accomplished and on her way. She had been a bartender for a long time in the community and she had just gotten a new position at a beer and wine distributor. So she was the kind of woman that everybody in town knew. Van Buren is not that big. And on top of it, she really is a stunning woman. So both both well-known for her talent, her hard work, and her beauty. She just stood out. So Egypt's longtime boyfriend, they had been on again, off again over 10 years. Circumstances had changed. And finally, the two of them had come back together. His name is Curtis Meadows, a lovely man and very close with Egypt's family. They were preparing to move in together. And this happened, her murder happened about a week before they moved in together. They had known each other for 10 years. So the last time Egypt was seen alive was on June 22nd. She went to a yoga class. She texted some girlfriends. And then she also was texting back and forth with Curtis. This is important as far as the timeline goes. So Curtis sends a text to his girlfriend and, you know, says, good night and I love you. Egypt responded. This is the last text we know of, nighty night. Last time anyone heard from Egypt. The next day, which would have been June 23rd, 
Curtis found it really weird that he sent her a good morning text and she didn't respond. That was kind of weird because they always do that. Okay. Then he called and he was texting throughout the day. No response. He's finding that really bizarre, but it's Father's Day and he's going to have a nice dinner with his daughter. So, you know, he's trying to be not the overly right, overly worried boyfriend. It's like, oh, she just must be busy. After he drops off his daughter from dinner, he decides to go over to Egypt's house. And he said he started having a really sinking feeling because as he's pulling up, he is seeing her car there at the house, which is already making him think something is wrong. So I want to play for everyone now a clip of my original interview with Curtis as he describes in detail how he found Egypt. And when he refers to Ruby, this is this is the dog, Egypt's dog, and she was in the house when all of this took place and had been there while poor Egypt was dying. So here's the clip. When he turned onto her street. I seen her car in the driveway and my stomach just sank. I just, just knew something was right. I knew the, the ideal of her forgetting her phone was no longer there. Egypt lived in a duplex with her little dog, Ruby. When Curtis walked up, he noticed the door was open. I took a step in, two steps, and I yelled her name, Egypt, and her dog, Ruby, barked. Ruby comes running into the kitchen, and Curtis immediately notices something is off. Usually when you see Ruby, she just can't wait to like jump in your lap and kiss you. But she just looked at me, made eye contact and turned around like, follow me. What Curtis saw when he followed Ruby will haunt him for the rest of his life. So I seen her feet and then I took one more and I seen her. She was bound with her hands behind her back in a fetal position, laying on the ground, blood covering her head. And, uh, you know, you just know she's gone. Police say that Egypt's body was tied up with Christmas lights and that she had been shot in the back of the head. And as we said, there was no sign of break-in. And as you mentioned, Danny... This was a duplex and her neighbors were away. So no one would have heard a struggle, a scream or the gunshot. And in the very beginning, Curtis admits, he said, obviously they looked at him, right? He, f- he found the body. Right. He was the boyfriend. And that's not unusual, right, Danny? No, he, I mean, he would definitely be a, a you know, person of interest right off the bat. Um, anyone in a uh, intimate relationship with her um, past or present is going to be on the list of of people that you're going to want to speak with if you're the investigator. And Curtis says, uh, he just, he volunteered. He said, you know what? I went through a rigorous interrogation and investigation and he was cleared. He was cleared by the police without question. Um, You know, the family, they're lovely. They're lovely, lovely people. Curtis is a lovely man. And I was so deeply, deeply affected by the amount of pain that Curtis still has in his heart. Sure. Because 
he walked in and he saw the love of his life in this condition that no one should ever have to see. Yeah. And I don't know how someone repairs from that. I don't know how a family repairs from a loss and such a violent, violent taking of a family member. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know that you ever can get over something like that. <clears throat> I think you move on um, to an extent because life goes on, but yeah, you're never going to be whole again when something like that it, it happens and, and a loved one's taken away. And of course, you know, you and I both, we know so many families that, that have been through that. And, um, you know, there's, there's some similarities and some hardships that are shared. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And when the news broke and we were talking, I, I wanted to do this for this podcast. Yesterday, um, I was in touch with Egypt's mother, father, and one of her sisters. I pulled out my file. I always keep my, my, my old files, right? And, um, and they're all in shock. Everyone's in shock. They are, they are on one side, they are elated that there has been an arrest. Then they are unbelievably confused because everything that they've been told by detectives was that they believed that there was one among them. There's so many questions left. And, you know, in some of those questions, um, I I mean, do you know for sure that DNA is what solved the case? I don't. I don't know. Uh, In fact, yesterday I also called (laughs) the detective in charge of the case at the Michigan State Police. Uh, and he was incredibly tight-lipped, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, we, uh, but there was a discrepancy going on. They had not yet released whether there was one or two suspects. And I said, you know, I'm really trying to get to the bottom of this. And we talked a little bit about the family and, you know, um, obviously how much regard we all have for the family and what they're going through. And one of the conversations I had with the sergeant actually was, I said, you know, the family is yet to be reached by the victim's advocate from the prosecutor's office. I said, I don't know how you run things in Michigan, but they need help right away. And yeah. I was so glad this morning when I woke up and I saw a text from Egypt's dad who said, I got a call from the advocate. Thank you. Because they're, even though it's very early on in the case, you know, they, they're, they're reeling. It, it's yeah. too much for them. And they need someone to be there, to hold their hand, to guide them. And I, and I was very honest in my conversation with the father. I said, the process ahead is going to be very painful and it is not kind to families of victims and survivors. I will just let you know that it's going to be a very hard process for you because they're reliving everything. I'm, I'm curious about the, that there was two suspects. Um, the, the information is there were two suspects and now it's one. But could two suspects have been arrested? Uh, the evidence submitted to the prosecuting attorney, and only one person charged, because they could say there's insufficient evidence to charge both. Now, if there's a if DNA is in a factor here, perhaps uh, the man that was arrested, his DNA puts him at the crime scene. He has no other, you know. There's no reason it should be there. It's a lock, you know, this guy's good for a murder, but the other suspect, perhaps it's circumstantial at this point. So they charge one and the other one they're still investigating or maybe hoping that they can get one suspect to roll over on the other. But I wouldn't be surprised because otherwise there's a real big mystery here of, of you know, okay, this, this seems to be somebody who the victim knew. And yet this person that we're talking about, this career criminal, 
he doesn't really fit into any part of her lifestyle whatsoever. No, no so, none at all. In and, fact, and, I'm sorry, please go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say, and, and to, to me, the, the real big thing is where did those Christmas lights come from? That's, a, that's, that's something that I really, really want to focus on. And I'm sure that the police have, but um, it makes a big difference because when you're talking about premeditation, a, a killer would bring the things that he needs with him, not use something of opportunity. So were the Christmas lights in a box in her garage? Were they already there? Uh, did the neighbor not take the Christmas lights down off of their house and he grabbed those? Or did he bring them with him? And so the Christmas lights to me are, are, are real important in this. And, and, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And no doubt they would be covered in DNA. You, yeah, with that, you, would, you would think so. And I mean, you know, bulbs break, you know, who knows? He could have even scratched himself, left a little blood or, or certainly um, cells, you know, skin tissue, et cetera. But um, very, very interesting. And, and it'd be really interesting to see it play out. I mean, of course, as an investigator, I want to know everything, but I'm not going to get to know everything until it becomes public information. Yeah. I, I, and I, they're very reasonable questions. And I think some of it might help the family process some yeah. of this. It's not going to alleviate anything, but it might help with trying to figure out what, what happened here? What happened to our daughter? So Timothy Moore has been charged with first degree murder, felony murder, first degree home invasion, felony in possession of a firearm and four counts of felony firearm. Very interesting. The charges. What is the difference between first degree murder and felony murder? This may be a Michigan thing, but it seems does that why two murder charges? Yeah, and I'm not I'm not familiar with with Michigan's um, uh, laws, but and every state varies. But the point is, they're they're putting every charge that they can on him at this point, so that there's no wiggle room. Um, what they actually prosecute may be completely different, but certainly. Uh, it seems like a first-degree murder charge is, is uh, in play. Um, something else I wanted to say, Anna, about, the, about um, Timothy Moore is what I would really focus on, and I'm sure the police are doing this, but perhaps the nexus isn't with the victim but the neighbor. You know, a duplex is a pretty close, you know, situation almost. I mean, it's, it's more than a next-door neighbor, you know. I mean, they're they're pretty close and uh of some of the news clips that i've watched i know that that there was someone that kind of um indicated that the neighbors might have been a little bit different in their lifestyle um you know i'll just leave it at that but but perhaps if there's not a second suspect perhaps that's how uh the suspect could have known our victim was just because he's familiar with the home next door so he might not she might not have been so alarmed had he knocked on her door, um, you know, it could be something like that. Or he never intended to go to Egypt's place, but was looking for the people next door. That's right, the possibility. And you're right that if she knew him, had seen him before, because he's associated with the other neighbors, that maybe she wasn't alarmed. And that would have been the may have known aspect that police have been hanging on to. And he, I mean, he's got a long history of crimes for drugs, guns, home invasion. I mean, th this guy is a career criminal. And I do not blame the family when they say, man, if he had just stayed in 
prison or jail, depending on where he was in the process, maybe she would still, she would still be alive. You know, I, I, and I don't want to, um, I keep saying this about how the family is so confused and it's not that I've lost sight of the fact that they have made an arrest. It's that again, when you lose someone and for three years, you hold on to a nugget that it is someone among us. That is where you have actively been living for three years as you, as a family member, are trying to figure out what you can do to help the police solve this. In fact, there was an ex-boyfriend of Egypt's who had been named a person of interest, never a suspect. They had a volatile relationship, according to her family, and he cooperated with police. He had an attorney, and he said he had nothing to do with it. He was never charged. He was never named a suspect. He's certainly never been arrested. And so you have to understand that for those three years, the community intensely focused on themselves, billboards everywhere in places where police thought it might be seen by people they were wondering might be connected. Again, so for three years, this was the mindset and the focus of the family. So how shocking it has been to realize this may have been a random act of violence. So when I spoke with Chuck Covington yesterday, I said, is there, is there anything that you want to share for this update? So he gave me this statement, and, I, and this is for everyone. Chuck Covington is Egypt's father. To all the people who have come out for Egypt and the family, we are so appreciative. We want to thank everyone. These arrests, at the time there were two, Remember, they didn't announce that in, until late yesterday. These arrests have brought all the emotions back up to the surface. My big question is why? We all want to know the motive. Why would anyone want to kill my daughter? So we don't know that. Authorities no, haven't said. That's the, the really, really um, um, mysterious part of this case is that, you know, there seems to be no other motive other than that that the killer intended to kill her. I mean, that's clear, you know, that's very clear. It is basically an execution. So um, absent any other motive, it's, it's still a very, very puzzling case. It is. And as we find out more, we will keep you updated on this podcast and also on our website and social Great. media. Yeah, no, I, I'm definitely interested in, in staying on. Our next case is out of Florida, and it mixes a deadly game of drugs and playing with a gun that ended up with an 18-year-old woman dead and her 54-year-old boyfriend charged with her killing. Michael Hutto is charged with manslaughter in the death of Laura Duncan. Michael is one of the founders of the Salt Line apparel brand. Salt Line is best known for beachwear, surfing clothes, board shorts, and clothes for like fishing and diving. The man made millions on this. There were four friends who started this clothing line in Jacksonville, Florida. It is very well known in Florida. He sold his part of the business in 2013 and again, made millions, millions. There are a lot of things about this case that I find troubling. I also find it troubling that he's only been charged so far with manslaughter. We're going to get into the details, Danny, and then I, I want your feedback on what you think was going on at the time. So 
These two were dating. He's 54. She's 18. Her parents didn't like it at all. I can understand why. So the two had checked in to the Hilton Oceanfront Resort on Singer Island, which is near Palm Beach. And they were ultimately headed to the Keys to go hang out with some friends. Now, to understand, Danny, what happened in that hotel room and what was going on between the two of them, this, I mean, basically, I mean, if you look at his mugshot, he looks like a washed up surfer, a 54 year old guy and this beautiful 18 year old woman with the rest of her life ahead of her. So I'm going to split this storyline into two parallel tracks because what cops didn't know when they were working each of the cases, one, the dead woman, and one who would end up being the suspect, things were going on almost parallel, and you had two different police departments dealing with both of these people. So I think if, if I explain the case that way, it, it might help. So we're going to be linear, but in two tracks. All right, we're going to start with Laura's parents. Of course, they were very upset that she was dating this guy and she didn't, they didn't like that she took off for the weekend with him of all people. So on October 26, Laura's father calls the sheriff's department and requests a welfare check of his daughter, but she wasn't found by authorities until three days later on October 29th. So we're going to fill in the gap of what was going on here. Laura's parents told the police that they believed that Michael was giving her drugs to keep her sedated. That's from their perspective. The father said that when he last spoke to his daughter, she sounded out of character and like she was on drugs. So then what happens is the parents start to get even more worried because Laura is not responding to their calls or texts. And the father jumps in and does a little detective work and he takes her cell phone. He tracks the location of his daughter's cell phone to this hotel and he calls the police back and he says, I'm telling you something is wrong. This is where her phone is right now. Please go to the hotel and tell me that my daughter is okay. They go to the hotel and that's where they find Laura Duncan dead, shot in the abdomen. And her boyfriend, Michael, is nowhere to be found, Danny. So here's what's interesting. Michael, according to the police, left his cell phone, his wallet, and his ID. He basically took off. And he even tells police later that he just took off. When you look at this, we haven't even gotten to what Michael has, has what happens next in Michael's life on this parallel track so what are you thinking at this point? I mean, the parents clearly knew something was wrong. They thought the daughter was in danger. Police find her dead. Yeah, I mean, well, obviously you've got a situation where um, toxicology is going to be really, really important uh, to know what, what was in her body at the time of her death. Um, she, she might have been so far out of it that there's no way they were playing this game that he alleges they're playing because, quite frankly, you don't die uh, being shot in the abdomen, it doesn't, you don't, you don't just fall over and die. So, um, you know, without knowing what the crime scene looks like, you know, did she ever get up off the ground or off the bed or wherever it was that they found her? Or did she just lay there and die without trying to, to reach a phone or crawl to the door? 
Um, it's very different than being shot in the head or in the heart or, or you know, uh, taking a fatal shot. And um, so that's really puzzling to me. And I, and I just wonder how, how far out of it, how badly had she been drugged? And, you know, was it the date rape drug that he was using on her? Um, I don't know. But that's really important because, um, you know, they're looking at it as a manslaughter and it's all based on his story. And his story doesn't make sense. No, his story does not make sense. And also, you bring something up that I find morally troubling here. If when she was shot in the abdomen, as you say, she probably wouldn't have died had she received help. Correct. The obligation was on Michael to call for help and to get her emergency medical services immediately. And the fact that he didn't do that, I believe, makes him more responsible for her death, not just in the shooting, but in the fact that he didn't act responsibly to save her life. Sure. And he panicked. And it also goes towards state of mind. You know, I mean, uh, if it were truly an accident, you know, why wouldn't you take those steps? Why wouldn't you, uh, a reasonable person be, oh my God, look what I accidentally did. I mean, accidental shootings happen. And generally speaking, you know, the person that did that doesn't panic and flee with no intention of, of, of doing anything to aid the victim um, as he did. So it's, yeah, that is a very puzzling part of it. And had she survived and it really was an accident, she could have corroborated that possibly, right? Yes. Uh, let me put it to you this way. He would be no worse off than he is now. In fact, he's worse off now by his actions if it was indeed accidental, that this yeah. decision was a fatal decision for Laura. Yeah. Okay. Now I said, you know, we wanted to talk about the parallel track. So this is what's going on in Laura's life, right? Parents are worried. Send the police over. Sheriffs find her dead. They know that there was a man in there because he's paid for the room and all his ID is in there. So where is he? While the cops are figuring out their situation down in Palm Beach, cops up in the Jacksonville area have an entirely different case on their hands. This is what's incredible. So three hours north, that's where Jacksonville is, from the scene of the crime, Police are dealing with a guy who's acting crazy and saying crazy things. This would be Michael, Michael Hutto. Michael apparently ran out of the hotel room after Laura was shot and he drove in his car and drove until he ran out of gas. He ran out of gas somewhere near a St. Augustine gas station. Didn't make it into the gas station. So apparently the police get a call that there is a guy passed out in a car that is illegally parked, meaning there's something wrong about it. And it's outside a gas station and he looks passed out. Call the cops, take him to the Jacksonville hospital. He is described as twitching and making delusional comments and crying with his eyes rolled back to his head. When you hear something like that, what do you think, Danny? Well, I I mean, A, he's obviously under the influence of something. But more importantly, uh, again, you've got not only did he panic and run out of the hotel room, but he's spent at least three hours driving and thinking about what he's done. So he's he's uh, alert enough to, to drive himself, you know, three hours away. And during that period of time, 
he's thinking of nothing except for what happened, and yet he still doesn't call anyone. He still doesn't try to send help there. He still doesn't do anything to make it right. So again, how, how could that be viewed as an accident? It, it, that doesn't make sense to me. No, it doesn't make sense to me either. So he allegedly told, because remember, police had to take him to the hospital along with the EMTs. He allegedly told police and people at the hospital, oh my God, I think I hurt my Gracie. And then he started crying. Okay, you know, if you didn't know what was going on in Palm Beach, right, down right. on Singer Island, you might think this guy's having like a real, you know, drug-induced episode. Yeah. Okay. Michael begins to leave the hospital. By the time he's about to leave the hospital, cops in Jacksonville and cops in Palm Beach have figured out these two cases are connected and they stop him before he leaves the hospital and he is arrested immediately. And according to court records, he told police when confronted about what happened to Laura that it was all an accident. He said that Laura was indeed his girlfriend and that were, they were playing inside their hotel room as if they were shooting their fingers with a gun. Okay, well, that's really bizarre. And fingers don't kill people <laughs> unless right. they're the trigger of a gun, right? right yeah. Okay, so he goes on, Michael goes on and tells detectives that Laura was sitting on the counter of the bathroom when he pointed the gun at her and fired shot her and that's when he took off here's what i don't understand he's been charged with manslaughter he has not been charged with murder how is this not murder second degree murder but not manslaughter yeah you know i mean they're going to have a hard case to prove because there's there's no witnesses obviously and they have to somehow defeat his story his account of what happened, somehow they have to overcome that. So um, in a case like this, it, it, it can become a circumstantial case. And you could look at patterns of conduct, past behaviors. Um, if I were the investigator, I'd want to talk to every woman who had ever been involved with this man. And I'd want to see what patterns of conduct. And again, I, you know, I mentioned the Phil Spector case earlier. That's how he was convicted. He had a history of sticking his gun in women's mouths. So you know, that pattern of conduct, it, it removes that, oh, I, it was a terrible, tragic accident. And, and that's, that's hopefully what they're going to be looking at in this case is, is you know, what, what is this man, what has his, um, his past behavior been like? And does it indicate that this might not have been uh, just an accident? I, I don't understand why the police are accepting his version of events. And that he's only been charged with manslaughter. Is it possible after forensics, DNA, other crime scene evaluations, his history, is it possible that they may charge him with something more serious than manslaughter after this? Yeah, sure. I mean, in, in, until he's convicted of the manslaughter, I mean, it's still wide open to, to enhance the charges. And hopefully, you know, it could be that they've just charged him with that while they're continuing to investigate. Um, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I just don't know. I hope, I hope that it's not a matter of, well, we have no way to prove that, that his version isn't true, so this is all we'll do. Yeah, I'm, I'm very disappointed in the charges. I'm also worried because 
This is a rich guy in Florida who's well known in that beach community. And I hope that his status and that his wealth, if he still has any money left, that that didn't somehow have a bearing on the decision of what to charge him with. I really hope it didn't influence that. Well, I mean, it probably did to a certain degree, at least, because I'm sure that there was at least one or two high-powered attorneys that, that you know, became involved in this immediately. And, and when you get that kind of, of horsepower coming in and, and representing and, and, you know, being the advocates for this person, then, you know, that is going to, uh, you know, kind of, it could change the direction of a case. It could, it could, it could, uh, I don't know. Well, well, okay, Danny, here's another way to look at it. So Michael appeared in court via a video link on Monday in Palm Beach County, and the judge set bond at $225,000. That is not a lot of money, especially if you only have to put down 10% cash. Right. So no, that guy's walking. That's true. But in a manslaughter case, I'm sure that that bail scale is appropriate. And, oh, had you know, it been murder, then the bail would be higher. Yes. So there's only so much they can do with something like that. And, and you know, I mean, without knowing anything about the investigation itself, if, if they've charged this man with manslaughter, which they have, then uh, they, they must really feel that that they have no way to prove, even if they believe that it that it's a, a, a level above manslaughter, they just probably at, don't have any way to prove it at this point. Well, in addition to manslaughter, Hutto has also been charged with possession of a weapon during a felony. So we'll keep an eye on this one. It's very disturbing. And I, I feel very badly for Laura's parents who probably are feeling right now like justice was not served and when they called for help for a welfare check three days earlier, it appears that Laura was indeed alive. And if someone had just taken their concerns more seriously and acted more quickly, Laura may still be alive today. So it is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories that you all are talking about. A visitor to Disney blames her six-year-old son for having a concealed weapon. This is crazy. A Georgia woman is accused of hiding a loaded gun in her bag behind a plant near the entrance to Disney's Magic Kingdom, and she put the blame on her six-year-old son. Okay, according to the arrest report, the sheriff's office says that Marsha Temple was arrested and charged with carrying a concealed weapon after Disney workers spotted her hiding her purse near the entrance. Okay, they're probably thinking, oh my Lord, what is this woman doing? Not even thinking that there's a gun in there. Inside was a nine millimeter that was loaded with 10 bullets. Okay, it was loaded, people. And she's going into, right, a family resort. According to the report, as the deputy was looking in the purse, Temple walked over to the deputy and said, hey, that's mine. (laughs) Which, of course, helps with the case a lot, I would think, with identifying the property. And then the deputy said, why do you have a loaded gun at Disney And so she reportedly told the cops, my six-year-old son was supposed to be watching it for her. Yeah, I mean, sounds like child endangerment to me. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I would think so, right? Well, uh, she was held in the jail, and on top of it, she has been banned from Disney. <laughs> Yeah, I would think. Yeah, she's on the list. She's on the no-no list. No, you cannot ever come back here again. Gail C writes, "Sure, let a six-year-old be in charge of a loaded gun. What could possibly go wrong?" I agree with you, Gail. Don H writes, "The six-year-old is smarter than mom. He didn't want to carry it. It's like mom, you can't bring a gun to Disney." Hello. <laughs> Our next case is a West Virginia woman tries to teach her children a lesson by driving with the kids on the roof of the car. Okay. On October 21st, officers responded to a call of child neglect and they found, excuse me, and they found Casey Gorby, 37 years old, parked in a 2011 Ford Escape and she had three children with her, two of them aged five, one aged eight. Officers stated that while Gorby was parked and waiting for a friend, Two of the children climbed on the roof of the vehicle. Okay, kids do do crazy things like that. It was parked. I'm not saying it was okay. But if you've ever been in a parking lot with children in a car, all right, we understand. Right. It's what she did next that is the problem. Instead of getting the children off of the roof of the car, which I think would have been the right thing to do, she thought, all right, kids, I'm going to teach you a lesson. So with the kids on the roof of the car, she puts it in reverse. <laughs> she figures, if I scare the living daylights out of these kids, they'll never climb on the roof again. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, she told Child Protective Services that she wanted them to see how easily it would be for them to fall off the roof of the car. Yes. If you watch yeah, any cartoon, you could know that yourself. That's a pretty clear case of child endangerment and... Um yeah, that it's almost unbelievable that, that someone would be that stupid, quite frankly. I know. And and the other part of this is, is that she's saying, yeah, I did that because I was trying to teach them a lesson. As if she's standing right. there and saying, well, of course I did that. <laughs> <laughs> and I have good reason for it. That's the part that gets me as opposed to, oh, my Lord, I don't know what I was thinking. No, that's not what she said. She's like, right. yeah, if they fell off, they'd figure out. Don't do this again. Those right. are her parent. Those are her parenting skills. All right. She has been charged with two counts of child neglect and creating risk of injury. I'm always curious when I hear these unusual charges that I've never heard before in the law, but nonetheless, they exist. Yeah. So Chloe F. writes, well, looks like she was the one to learn a lesson. I hope so. Crystal E. writes, what was the lesson? That you're a terrible mother. And Thea D writes, kids will be kids, but she's an adult. And her explanation sounds childish. Yes, it does. That's a great yes. comment. <laughs> right? It really yeah. is. Well, that's our program for this week. Danny, I'm so happy that you were with us this week for your insight. Um, where can people find out more about you, find your books? How many books do you have? All that good stuff. So I have a series, uh, the Dickie Floyd series is six books, and you can find those on Amazon. You can get them through my website, uh, which is murdermemo.com. And um, I also write a blog, and it's a crime blog. And um, that's you can find that at murdermemo.com. In fact, the blog's called The Murder Memo. So there's, there's a lot of stories in there, uh, true stories of, of, of cases and crimes and, and things that I've been involved in over the years. And there's also some, you know, kind of uh, off the wall things occasionally too. It just depends on what I feel like writing. 
But um, you can learn all about me on my on my website. You can order my books through the website. You can find them on Amazon, uh, the Dickie Floyd Detective Novel Series, Danny R. Smith. And um, the, uh, the series has won uh, quite a few awards. Uh, a couple of the books have been bestsellers, uh, Amazon bestsellers. So um, they're, they're, they've uh, gained in popularity a lot, lot more than I ever thought they would have. So I appreciate I you mentioning them. Oh, I think it's great. I really do. Are you done writing books? Or is that like you did your series and you're done and you're moving on? Or are there going to be more? There's going to be more. I actually have a, a book that I'm getting ready to publish. It's going to be a spinoff from the Dickie Floyd series with uh, one of the characters that that just kind of developed and I fell in love with. Uh, his name is Rich Ferris, and the series is is going to be called the Rich Ferris Detective Series. And um, and the first book is going to be called The Outlaw, and it's finished. It's just there's a few small things that that are getting finished right now before it's published. I also have a memoir that's that's with a uh, a publisher now that that I'm hoping it gets published sometime next year. Um, so that's been written, and I've got like three different projects that I've started, which I probably shouldn't do, but you know I I, I get a, a urge to write something and I just start writing. So I've got a couple of open projects, but for the most part, no, I won't, I'm not done. I'm I'm just about done with being a private investigator and a consultant. And I hope to uh, be retired from that soon and spend the rest of my days golfing and writing. I love it. You go from a homicide detective in Los Angeles working on the Phil Spector case, and you end up writing a series of of novels. I I love it. What a great life. So fascinating. I'm so I've been very, very blessed. And I have a wonderful family. And I, I mean, I've just been blessed beyond what I deserve, quite frankly. Oh, well, we will link to all of your websites and your books. And I hope you come back again. We loved having you Thank on. You. I would love to. Anytime. Yeah. Anna, Good it's seeing great you again. To see you again. Yeah. Yes. And always more pleasant to see you like this than on the scene of a murder. Yes. Oh, I always prefer my relationships this way. All right. You can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N on all social media platforms. I don't tweet and, and you know, uh, post as much about crime because I need a break from it. I got to tell you, I'm more into like chihuahuas and other things. And if you follow me, you know that. And I also read your comments and you know that too, if you follow me. So as always, you can find our content on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. And of course, you can watch it on YouTube on our channel. We have more than 4 million subscribers. Thank you so much to all of you who support us. And you can get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So until next week, I'm Anna Garcia, your host. And as we always say, don't do crime.